is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. Conductor, composer, and musician extraordinaire Leonard Bernstein had this to say about the orchestral conductor's job. Perhaps the chief requirement of the conductor is that he be humble before the composer, that he never interpose himself between the music and the audience, that all his efforts, however strenuous or glamorous, be made in the service of the composer's meaning. The music itself, which, after all, is the whole reason for the conductor's existence. Well, being in service to the composer and the music is, in an ideal artistic environment, the pinnacle of our lives as musicians. How artists find the inspiration in being of service to great music is where some of our most profound stories lie. Well, today I am speaking with a conductor who honors the composer and the music, who finds the secret language of the space between the notes and ultimately takes us on a significant journey of artistic discovery. Conductor Gerard Schwartz has had no problem finding truth in musical expression, and his ability is to facilitate fundraising and donor relations is recognized as a gift that is equal to the orchestras that he has conducted. He has served as music director of the Mostly Mozart Festival in New York, the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, and the New York Chamber Symphony. For 26 years, he presided over the Seattle Symphony, developing the orchestra's strength and stature. His influence in the building of Benaroyal Hall in Seattle is simply that of legend. You know, I have a suspicion that Gerard Schwartz is the adventurer I so often seek in my interviews. He's a creator and a builder. I'm going to call him an architect from now on in this interview. His road to establishing his legacy has never been traditional, really. Though his hundreds of accolades, including seven Emmy Awards, 14 Grammy nominations, and eight ASCAP Awards, have marked Maestro Gerard Schwartz as one of the most con important conductors and advocates for music in the world. Now Principal Music Director of the Palm Beach Symphony since 2019, Jerry Schwartz is sharing his truths with a new league of players and fans. Gerard Schwartz, I want to welcome you to Center Stage. It is simply an honor to have you with me. Oh, thank you so much. What a wonderful introduction. Boy, oh, very poetic. Thank you so much. I specialize in them, Gerard. I tell you, I sit with my, with my candidates and I try to invoke just a feeling of who they really are, you know? So we, we never become just another cookie cutter interview. For sure. Thank you. It's about the artist's journey, and yours has been so interesting. Now, I've got to ask you the big, pivotal first question. After hearing that intro, how have you found the inspiration to be of service to the composer and the music and find your honest truth? Well, I agree with Bernstein 100%. Uh, I must say that I knew him quite well. I'm not always sure that he abided by his own thinking. And very often I felt that there was the Leonard Bernstein show and it wasn't the Beethoven show or the Brahms show. I, I was thinking that too myself, to be honest. But but he, he was brilliant, as we all know, and, and mm -hmm. in so many ways. And certainly he was accurate. We are the servants of the great uh, creators. The creators are our, our inspiration 
And so our job is to, yes, make whatever is special in that music come forward. The composer gives us just black and white on a piece of paper. Yes, with a lot of directions, but, but it's, as you said, it's what goes on behind those notes, behind those directions that is so important for us to really understand it, to digest it, to have it become part of who we are and part of our lives. And that's why uh, we conductors really are always uh, learning. We're always studying. We're always thinking about how to do it better. And that's why so many of the greatest conductors obviously have been known when they were old. I mean, look at Toscanini, who was mm-hmm. music director of the NBC Symphony when he was 70. That's when mm-hmm. he got there. And in a way, having that, those years of experience and study to, at the service of those composers is what, what it's all about. And, and quite frankly, it's, it's not about us. It's not about me, and it's not about Toscanini, and it's not about Bernstein, really, either. It's about Beethoven and Brahms and, and David Diamond and Aaron Copeland and whomever, because they are, they are the people that we revere and we try to bring to the musicians and the orchestra, but maybe even more importantly to the audience. So when I talk about what, what uh, my thinking is, my thinking first is to be a servant, yes, to the composer as best I can. I do everything I can to, to perform what he or she wrote as, as close as possible. Of course, and there's a lot of interpretation that goes mm-hmm. on beyond that. There's no question, naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But then my next concern is to make sure that the audience uh, is, is, is well taken care of care of because they're the ones that we're trying to express this to. I, I care deeply about the audience. I care about what we uh, perform and how we perform it and to make sure that we bring this music life to them. And then of course to the orchestra. But I would say it's in that order, the composer, the audience, and then the musicians uh, in front of me. Um, and it's, it's a wonderful journey. As, as again, you say, it's a journey with every piece we play, every piece I conduct, uh, every every audience that you perform for, and um, and it's a thrilling, exciting journey. Every time, every time I get up to conduct anything, it's an important mm. journey for me. That is so thrilling to hear you say, as a conductor, and now as of course a teacher to aspiring young conductors. I mean, I'm sure you've been saying those words all afternoon at your new position at the Frost School of Music in, in Florida. Well, it's interesting. Uh, yes, I'm teaching conducting now. So I teach it at the Eastern Music Festival. I have a very wonderful conducting class. And then I have uh, four students here at the University of Miami at the Frost School. Uh, but my students really are the orchestra, aren't they? So we have 100 musicians uh, in the school that play in the orchestra. And mm-hmm. it's my job to hopefully teach them something, not just conduct them, not just say, play this, play that, do this, do that, the, the way you often have to do with professionals. Because right. with professionals, they, they want you to be efficient. They want you to get, get the, the show on the road and don't waste my time and don't educate me. Just tell me what you want or show me what you want. When you're mm-hmm. working with students, even on an extremely high level, the way they are here at Frost, you have the opportunity to give the reasons why. Not just they soft or play louder, better. But why should right. this note be a certain length and that note be a different length? What did the composer write? You know, you, you, it, it just it just comes up over and over again, and it's really fun 
it's fun to be able to say the why that very often with professionals, you don't, you're not able to do. I mean, I remember when I was in the New York Philharmonic and Pierre Boulez was the music director, he was really uh, remarkable on many, many, especially with balances and with intonation and with certain uh, pacing things, but he never was one to tell you why. So he tuned things and he'd work things out and then uh. it would have to go a new, a, 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 a new um, existence, if you, if you may. But he never said that's why. interesting. And so as a result, the musicians didn't, many of them in those days, didn't quite get what he was about. I mean, yes, he wasn't about conducting Brahms and Beethoven, but he was about beautiful sonorities, beautiful balances, beautiful intonation, especially in the French repertoire and in contemporary music. I mean, Stravinsky, yeah, Ravel, I mean, it was just a, a great experience having played all those pieces with now, let's talk about your time in the New York Philharmonic. You were a trumpet player. And I find this so fascinating that, as I said in the beginning, you came to conducting it in a rather unusual fashion. Um, and I really would love to hear about the genesis of that. What was that cathartic experience that you had that made you want to pick up that baton? Well, you know, it's interesting that you, that you point that out, because when you think of conductors, most of them play the piano. Well, I play the piano. I've always played the piano since I was a little boy. But most of them are pianists. Mm -hmm. I'm not a pianist. I don't go and play, play concertos the way Daniel Barenboim can or the way Leonard Bernstein could. Or they're string players. So uh, Toscanini was a cellist. And Kusevitsky was a bass player. And so mm -hmm. forth. Very rare is a conductor, does a conductor come from the background of any wind instrument? Okay, a flute or an oboe, maybe, but a trumpet, you know, I mean, trumpets, they sit in the back, they play too loud, and they're not <laughs> musical, and they're not sensitive, you know, right. I mean, it's, it's tricky. I mean, I remember when I, when I was leaving the Philharmonic to pursue my conducting full time, uh, one of my friends in the orchestra said to me, why would you leave being one of the best trumpet players in the world to become a lousy conductor? Oh! <laughs> Of course, my answer was, you know, I'm hoping I won't be a lousy conductor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> beautifully honest, beautifully. I love it. But the, the, so in a way, it's a disadvantage yeah. to, to come from the world of the trumpet because we are not considered musicians on the level of violinists or pianists. Uh, we may be, but that's not what, the way we're thought. Now, if you're not a very famous trumpet player, then it's no problem because nobody knows what instrument you play anyway. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of what instrument does Zubin made to play? Well, he plays the double bass, but you know, I happen to know that. I'm sure, Pamela, you know that, but very few people know that, nor do they right. care. On the other hand, if you're a famous trumpet player, and I was in my, in my youth pretty famous, then it's, it's either, oh, isn't it, he's such a great musician, isn't that great he's going to conducting? Or a trumpet player becoming a conductor, it's absurd. Can't have mm -hmm. it. So um, that was, in, on the one hand, it was an advantage because of my, of my ability. I knew a lot of people. And it was a disadvantage because, you know, we're not thought as trumpet players of being artists in that, in that sense. What happened with me was it has a lot to do with everything that has to do with your upbringing. You know, whether where you live. I mean, you, you, you're from Oregon. I mean, that's part of, of who you are. Pat. No matter what you do, you will be 
someone, mm-hmm. something about Oregon that would be part of, oh, I, I left Oregon years ago. I live in Greenwich and I bubble. On the other hand, as part of who you are. In my upbringing, it was a very wonderful one. My parents were Viennese. They came to the United mm-hmm. States in 1939. And our home was a cultural uh, home. Even though my parents were doctors, they cared deeply about music and about uh, uh, symphonic music, not chamber music so much, symphonic music, opera, uh, ballet. Uh, and they exposed my sisters and I to that. And that was our our home life. That was who we were. And and we all played the piano and we all went to the New York Philharmonic and we all went to the New York mm-hmm. City Ballet and we all, you know, went to, on occasion, the Met, not too often the Met. <laughs> my parents would take those tickets for themselves, of course. Um, <laughs> but it, 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 so that is who, where I came from. So mm-hmm. that's my heritage. My heritage is that, is that middle European upbringing that my sisters and I had. And I mean, I didn't even know that I was having that kind of upbringing until I went to Vienna for the first time. And, uh, and I went with my parents. I was on tour and they, they came to show me around. And it just seemed like home because that's what the home it was. was. Mm-hmm. Home was like what, what life was like in Vienna. And so that, so that was my, my background. So I, I was, I mean, all I wanted to do in my life was be a fine trumpet player. And all I wanted to do was play in the New York Philharmonic. And and I, luckily, I was I was able to do that, and you, I, wow. I could have done it for the rest of my life. I loved it. On the other hand, I also loved composers that I didn't get to play much. There wasn't a lot in Mozart. There wasn't a lot in Haydn. There wasn't a lot in Schubert. There wasn't. Okay. I didn't have the 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 ability to express myself as an orchestral musician. Even now, if you ask me. Are the trumpets important in, in Schubert and, and, and Mozart and Haydn? Absolutely. If you don't have a really good trumpet, could it really hurt your performance? Absolutely. I'm not saying that their role isn't important, but they're not playing the melody. <laughs> they're, right. They're right. there for emphasis. They're there for support. They're there for, for drama. So as I, after I was in the Philharmonic, it, it dawned on me that really as much as I loved it, I, I really think I could make a contribution, artistic contribution mm-hmm. as a conductor. And when I was sitting there, you know, listening to all of the uh, uh, guest conductors, in fact, you know, Heiting, who just died, would come almost every year, oh, and, yes. and great conductors. And, and so often, I'm not talking about Heiting now, but so often they, their concern was that it be together and uh, uh, that uh, it wouldn't be too loud or too soft. Or they, very rarely did they talk about phrasing, very rarely. Hmm. They talk about the trajectory of a movement. Very rarely do they talk about pacing. Very rarely do they do things which I consider to be paramount in terms of music making. And I thought, gee, Liz, I, 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 maybe I, I could make a contribution here. And if I ever have that opportunity, I will make the expressive parts of conducting the most important part, without question. Wow. For me, it was about, if, if, if you talk to my students, does he work on rhythm? Does he work on good? I work on phrasing. I work on everything, of course. But phrasing is is the number one uh, issue for me, and 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 the phrase could be could be sixteen bars, could be thirty bars. It could be part mm-hmm. of the trajectory of the whole movement. Obviously, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's big phrases as well as little phrases, and and so that's really what I've done, and, and here I am still doing it. This, and I'm this is, now as I'm talking to you, you know, that was what I thought about when I was 
28 years old. And now, you know, at 74, I'm still thinking the same way. It's, it's the same way. step out of the rear of the orchestra. I mean, I, I, I remember reading a marvelous article about you in the New York Times about the emergence of this young conductor and that there was an opportunity at Aspen for you to, to step forward and conduct. And you were just like, gotcha, I can do this. Now, is that the kind of guy you really are? Can I call you Jerry? <laughs> Jerry. Yes, uh, that, that's, you're exactly right, because a conductor can't be a, a shrinking violet. The conductor mm-hmm. has to be secure and sure of herself himself. There's no question. You can't get in front of the orchestra and 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 question everything you do. You question everything you do at home when you're studying. You question every note, every beat, every mm-hmm. dynamic, every mm-hmm. phrase. But when you get in front of the orchestra, you have to have a point of view. Now, it can change very quickly. Uh, an orchestra can give you some information. A solo player or even a string section give you information that isn't what you were thinking about. And I said, wow, that's really, maybe we'll just do it like that. Or I'm doing it like this because that's what I wanted to do, but it's not working. Let me do it a different way. I mean, you know, you do, but when you you initially get up there, you mm-hmm. ha- have to be confident. You have to be sure of yourself. Uh, you shouldn't be arrogant, obviously. You shouldn't be, uh, you should be uh, a team player. I mean, we right. are team players. Right. Uh, on the other hand, you, you, you can't expect to go there and learn uh, on the job. You learn a lot while you're conducting, but you come to it from having a lot more knowledge of every note. I mean, you know, when you look at a score and you see all those notes, well, as a conductor, you really have to know all of the notes. You have to have thought about all of the notes and every player and how they are going to play it or how you think it should go. Again, you have to be flexible. People play in different ways. People give you information. And mm-hmm. sometimes it, it changes the way you think about the pieces. On the other hand, it, yes, you have to have a, a sense of confidence without question. And I have a feeling that you as the architect, as I, I like to uh, refer to you now, you were born with that perhaps. I mean, you speak of this family, the Viennese parents, your parents were physicians, I believe. And I know there's a direct correlation between, uh, you know, uh, doctors and musicians. I mean, all we have to do is look to the, the doctor's orchestra in Los Angeles, which is very fine. 
Um, do you think with that comes a, a certain joie de vivre that, that, you know, you're just born with that, that allowed you to grasp the brass ring? Yes. I believe that everyone is born with gifts of different kinds. And uh, some of the gifts are ones that you, you make sure everybody knows about. And then sometimes you have liabilities and you, you kind of try to hide those. <laughs> anybody can see your liabilities, you have to evaluate yourself. Uh, and it has a lot to do with perception too. You, know, you, you oh. perceive of yourself in a certain way, others perceive of you in a certain way, and the real perception is somewhere that may be all the same or may be different. But the idea is, I think I am a good conductor. I want the orchestra to think I'm a good conductor and I want the public to think I'm a good conductor. That's ideal. Now, mm -hmm. if I think, oh, I am the greatest conductor and the orchestra says, oh, that's, he's a terrible conductor and the audience thinks, oh, he's mediocre. I mean, that's not so hot. You have to try to make sure that you're in tune. And, and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, the question is exactly right. A lot of what you are is, you know, is it nurture or is it, is it the way you were mm -hmm. born? Knows, but uh, I mean, I think of a work ethic. I'm a very hard worker. I always work very mm -hmm. hard. My parents were extremely hard workers. My children are extremely hard workers. That is our way. We we uh, we don't count hours. We don't count services. We just do what you have to do. And that's something that that you, you know, in a way, either you're born with or your parents instilled in you. But by example, so yeah. a lot of a lot of the leadership qualities I think that conductors need do come from uh, from your upbringing. Now, yeah. it doesn't mean you can't learn it. Obviously, there are things, all, we all have learned a lot of things in our lives, and hopefully we're better human beings than we may have been uh, uh, 20 years ago if, if we're, if we're mm -hmm. at least 20 years old. Uh, you just, you know, it, things change and people That's change. Right. Oh, but the fundamentals, I think, are, are established many, many years ago for all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed, agreed. This is a marvelous life you're talking about. I mean, you know, even if you had not been blessed with a great talent, you still would have had a marvelous life, Jerry, from the sound of it. I mean, and I can tell from the smile wrinkles around your eyes and your mouth, you've enjoyed this life. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful it, it, it is. It is absolutely a, every day. Every day I'm excited to get up. That's, that's fantastic. Going back to, to when you stepped out of the orchestra, literally, and grabbed the baton. You know, I, I did that once myself when I, I, I developed a small choir. And I, I used to feel I had uh, the imposter syndrome, that I had no right to be that conductor. What, but you certainly did. And when you did, well, who did you look up to? Because you didn't go the usual route, you know, as an assistant to someone. Who, who, were, who were the greats that you looked up to to admire and learn from? Well, um, you're right. I, I didn't take the normal route. I mean, when I was at school at Juilliard, uh, there were a number of conductors. There. I wasn't a conductor. I did all the conductor courses because mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I was advanced in ear training and harmony and count. I was advanced in all that. So they had to give me the conductor courses. There was no option. But Leonard Slapkin was there when I was there. And John Nelson was there and Dennis Russell Davies and, uh, and Jimmy Conlon. I mean, we, there were some wonderful conductors studying and I was not studying conducting. I mean, I worked, 
thank goodness for some of the great teachers, you know, Jacob Druckmann and Milton Babbitt, Vincent Persichetti, oh, yeah. uh, Rene Lange, I mean, just great, great uh, teachers. But uh, I wasn't going that route. I was not studying conducting. Uh, so for me, uh, as it, it, it was a whole different trajectory about how I, I got to where I am. I'm a great believer in uh, studying conducting now that I teach it, <laughs> but uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't have that uh, uh, privilege. I wish I had, but by the time I started to conduct full-time when I was about 30, I felt that was behind and I needed to catch up. I mm. needed to all that repertoire and conduct and conduct and conduct. And then Los mm. Angeles Chamber Orchestra, New York Chambers. I mean, things happened, came my yeah. way. I worked at it. I tried to find my way, but it was it was a very difficult transition, a very difficult time. Uh, you know, people think when they look at you know your life or my life or somebody's life and say, "Oh, it was such an easy transition from being in the orchestra to being a conductor." Boy, at the when it was going on, it certainly didn't seem that way. But then, <laughs> in retrospect, it certainly was. Maestro Gerard Schwartz and his work are represented in over 350 recordings. The Gerard Schwartz Collection, a 30-CD box set of previously unreleased works, was issued on the Naxos label in 2017. I feel that the recording of Howard Hansen's romantic Second Symphony, Second Movement with the Seattle Symphony, which has opened and now closes part one of this interview with Maestro Schwartz, offers a dedication to his determined championing of contemporary works. I hope you will tune in to part two of this interview next Tuesday at 9 a.m. on WGCH Talk Radio when we discuss his 26-year tenure with the Seattle Symphony Orchestra and a re-release of his Schubert Symphony No. 9 with the New York Chamber Symphony from 1987 from the Master Performers Series. And, of course, continue hearing the intriguing stories of his life and present position as music director of the Palm Beach Symphony Orchestra. Please go to Center Stage with PamelaCoon.com for more information on my show and visit GerardSchwartz.com for complete information on my distinguished guest today. In the meantime, stay safe out there. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage.